This episode is a, a bit of a travel log, and uh, it's with my good friend Jake Cowan, longtime friend. Grew up together, and um, he's he's an absolute original. That's a that's the best term that I have for somebody like Jake, and uh, just doing great things in the community, doing great nonprofit work. He talks a little bit about that. One of the main topics on, on today's episode is a trip that he and his uh, wonderful wife Allie took. Um, to Asia, and it's just amazing. I felt, you know, listening him talk about it, I felt that I was there. He really, he really took me in. You know, it felt like I, w- I was on a trip with them, so it was really cool. We also, you know, of course, we also uh, uh, talked a little bit about professional wrestling. Had no idea all these years. I've known Jake, didn't realize that that he was a fan. Uh, I'm not a, as big as a fan as I, I once was, but it was something I enjoyed growing up and. Enjoy getting out with, with certain friends and checking that out. But in music, music, we had a great conversation regarding music and, and his brother Nick Cowan, who uh, who DJs on, on a local St. Louis station, and he can be heard online. And just amazing family, amazing friends. And uh, yeah, it took a little a little longer to put this one together than I expected. Get caught up on with some things, but um, here we are. So really, really privileged and honored to put this one out there and Jake he has um uh, he has a show that he puts together I think it's like Monday nights I'm in Chicago it's called is this a thing I'm gonna put the link to his Facebook page so you can check that out follow him there and also an- another thing that I had talked about and I could not remember the name of, of the charity that I donated to you you'll you'll hear in the episode why this is important but it was it's called um uh, volunteers in medicine so uh, when we talk about that, you'll now know what I'm talking about that I could not remember. Speaking of medicine, I want to thank Dr. Mark Holland, as always, for his sponsorship. You can find the uh, in the uh, show description on SoundCloud or Google Play or wherever you look at that. You can find uh, Dr. Mark Holland's information. Can't thank him enough for all that he has done to support this show. Also, holiday time's coming up here. Uh, when in the midst of it, and I know people are... Uh, ordering things and you know going online and doing all that. So why don't you go over to stephenwalden.com. Stephen has many of his amazing prints available. Uh, Jake's big, huge baseball fan, uh, so uh, you know he'd probably love uh, an Ozzy Smith print. And, and Stephen Walden is just an amazing artist. Yeah, I've talked about him many times before. You've heard him here on the on the podcast. And if you haven't, go look up one of his episodes and. Uh, Check that out. But he has he has different items available on his site. And uh, follow him on Instagram as well. You can follow me on Instagram. My website, KenCalcaterra.com. You can sign up for the mailing list, which I'm, you know, one of my New Year's resolutions or goals is to uh, get moving on that a little behind. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that's where I'm at there. Also, want to get back into yoga. And uh, Yoga Buzz is an organization which I have volunteered with and, yeah, it's just the theme is I'm behind on a lot of things right now. So, yeah, just focused, and uh, we'll get back to it in the new year, and hopefully we'll get more volunteering with them and get back into yoga. So check out Yoga Buzz and uh, go to one of their events. You're going to feel great. You're going to meet great people, and uh, yoga is just awesome for the body and mind and spirit. So here we are with Jake Cowan, Conversations with Calcaterra is the show. Follow me on social media, and uh, I'm just super honored. Jake was one of the original people that I wrote down when I started this podcast that would you know I wanted to have a conversation with, and now here he is. 
Jake, so good to have you on the mic and, and have you on the show, Conversations with Calcaterra. Got to give that little plug in there. I am uh, happy to be here with Conversations with Calcaterra, double plug. Nice, nice. Hashtag Conversations with Calcaterra. Got to do all that promotion. But we have to talk about, you know, we're just going to get into it and start with an important subject. We're not going to lead up to it. Bacon, the candy of meat. Oh, goodness. All right, so we're going to talk bacon. Um... You know, it, this actually, so I do a storytelling show, which we can also talk about at some point, and I have this whole story uh, about uh, about how I got into bacon. And so a lot of my friends, uh, as, you, as you know, know me as the bacon guy, which started so innocently uh, <laughs> when I lived in Washington, D.C., I uh, played on a softball team in a think tank softball league, uh, which is about as nerdy as you can get. Um, and we would go to this pizza place called Froggy Bottom afterwards. That sounds amazing. It is amazing. Uh, and uh, and we would order pizza, and I would always specify on the pizza that we wanted crispy, not Canadian bacon. Oh, heck yeah. Uh, because occasionally the order would come in wrong with Canadian bacon. And then somehow that morphed into this thing where over the subsequent five years, and even still sometimes it Today, people buy me things like bacon chapstick, bacon toothpicks, <laughs> bacon dental floss. It, uh, it, it's interesting how that attached to my identity, and it's interesting to me, uh, and I'm going to take this in a different direction than you might have wanted to go, but uh, things get attached to your identity uh-huh. uh, yeah. completely without your control sometimes yeah. in life. Um, is there something that attaches to you that is your bacon thing? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I don't think I have any anything like that. Um, which the bacon thing is quite interesting because when we first started hanging out way back in the day, it was uh, you were vegetarian. I was a vegetarian. Which is yeah. Which when when I found out at some point that because uh, I went into the navy after high school, and at some point when we reconnected, that there was this whole bacon thing. Um, and I was like, what? Bacon? Really? <laughs> What's going on there? And then, yeah, there you go. And what you missed was the conversion out of being a vegetarian was my uh, grandma Iona made her chicken and dumplings from scratch. Whoa. Uh, I think I was a sophomore or junior in college. Okay. I, was, I was home from college. Yeah. She made that and I was I was back on the meat train and uh, yeah. Now, do you, are you, do you keep it balanced these days? Because you're, you're looking great. You look fit, uh, look healthy. Uh, How's thank, your diet? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for saying that. No one can actually see whether that's true or not. So I'm just going to say, dude, I am super buff right now, and I'm glad you noticed. Um, I actually, you know, it's funny for being the bacon guy. I actually don't eat a lot of meat these days. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, there's a fair amount of uh, God. I use my diet. It's like a lot of stir fry or salad, like a nice. lot of veggie and grain sort of stuff. Yeah. And I, I do that less out of intention uh, to avoid meat. I do that more out of the convenience of it's easy to store veggies and those things over a few days. Yeah. Uh, whereas if I'm going to cook some meat up, I usually, you know, if I'm going to buy it on Tuesday, I either want to cook it on Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, and I just, I, I don't plan my world out that much. <laughs> so that's, it's it's more a function of that. I still dig on the meat, but uh, I don't eat a lot of it these days. That's all right. I mean, I'd like to at some point uh, maybe switch my, my diet to, you know, I guess, I don't know what percentage, maybe like 75%, you know, vegetables go that route, still enjoy, you know, the, the carnivorous side. 
But, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've done the keto diet, which was mostly meats and cheeses and all that. And that uh, Isn't that a thing where you got to, like, trigger some chemical reaction in your body? Yeah, ketosis. So uh, with that, it's um, you do a lot of exercise to, you know, burn all the carbs out of your system. And then when you're intaking fat, it uh, your body just starts burning fat because it, it has nothing else. So mm-hmm. also there's one thing called the slow carb, which is... Uh, you know, an Atkins is similar to that, but um, like the slow carb diet is when you're, you know, just very few carbs, no sugars, and uh, but like salads and like whole grains, things like that. So um, I guess not the complex carbs or, right. you know, it's not box food. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, as natural as possible and, you know, that's pretty good. And I think it's the balance of exercise and everything. Yeah, and I run a fair amount too, which is okay. probably why things come together pretty well for me as far as like fitness and just staying in shape and that sort of thing. Is I burn off just about everything I eat from running. Oh, nice, nice. So I, I my exercise of choice is bicycling, mm. just because with bicycling I can coast at times. So uh, you did a century not that long ago, yeah? A couple years. It's been a few years, and that summer I was planning on doing five centuries because there was some little patch you could get through an organization called Trailnet, mm-hmm. and uh, I only wound up I, I missed one because uh, it was a weekend I was out of town or doing something, and then another time something else was going on. Or no, I decided to just do a fifty mile ride instead because it was just me, and I thought, you know what? Uh, after you hit fifty or sixty miles. Um, that's when it just becomes a, a grind. Yep. And so the 50 miles was fun. You know, I felt pretty good. Um, you know, I put a great energy out and uh, rode pretty hard. And it was like, you know, I left not feeling like just totally just depleted. So it was nice. What I mean, when you run, what kind of what kind of mileage are you... You throwing out there? Uh, it's varied over the years. I keep it real short now. Mm-hmm. I just basically do four mile runs uh, three times a week. Um, oh, nice. I used to do like ten milers and half marathons, uh-huh. uh, but I don't. I don't play with those distances right now. I've actually. Yeah. I have done some biking lately. I did my very first century uh, ah. three days ago. Whoa! So I was yes. thinking of you because I remembered you had uh, you had done that. So nice. That, do tell what uh, where, where where was that? Where yeah, that it's called the North North Shore Century. Okay. Uh, it leads from Evanston, which is the city just north. North of Chicago, okay, uh, and you basically bike to Wisconsin and back. Oh, fantastic! Uh, which is like a sexy thing to say. I bike to another state. Heck yeah! Uh, yeah, it was super cool. Heck we went yeah. with a group of people. Um, actually, my wife uh, Allie runs with uh, a group of bikers who have the awesome bike team name Team Tough Muff. Uh, <laughs> team Tough Muff includes the slogans uh, "Keep it sleazy" and "Don't be a dick." Uh, so hashtag Team Muff, Team Tough Muff. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so I so I banded it on to their group, uh, and we did the ride together. And Heck it's, yeah. it's actually a really fun group. It's a super supportive set of people. Yeah. Uh, everybody sort of stays together. So I don't know if I could ever ride 100 miles on my own, but like doing it with six people who keep motivating each other. Oh, yeah. That's the way to get it yeah, done. Yeah, and I find the bicycling, uh, bicycling community is, is that way. Or maybe it's just the, the people, you, the group you, one rides with. But, you know, I find when I'm out, out riding, you know, you see a bicyclist, you throw a wave or a head nod or something like that. But typically, lately, I've just been putting in, uh, generally, it's like a 20-mile ride. Yeah. And then uh, I put in like a 30 and maybe a 40 this year. But just keeping it just, just enough to I can get out an hour and a half, burn some good calories, and, uh, you know, feel better and just, you know, get in that regular regular kind of thing. But, yeah, one of the greatest centuries, I you know, first century I ever rode... 
think that was the first one. It was well, the first year I didn't, but it was it was called the three state three mountain ride. So I had three Ooh. states. So it starts in even ch- sexier than yeah, two. Yeah, yeah. So you'll have to. I mean, maybe we should do that one one time. Go together. Yeah. But it was um, starts in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and then it goes through what is that like Georgia and I, I think it's Alabama or is it? Yeah, I think that's right. Georgia, Alabama, and Tennessee. So it's like you're right on yep. the corner that of the state. Right. And I forget the elevation. I think it was like, was it 30,000 feet? So, I mean, it's a lot of climbing. You start out, and within 15 minutes, you have the first climb, which is, I think, only a mile or two. So it's not bad, but, you know, it's a decent incline. And then the second one is a bunch of switchbacks. Um, so, so that one's yeah, that one's tougher. And then the third one is like a wall. And the first year, so I rode it, I was, you know, at that point, I just had a mountain bike. And so it was, uh, you know, a heavy bike. You know, my friends were on road bikes, so I was, you know, pedaling hard to keep up. And I, I got to the 75-mile point and was feeling, you know, feeling a bit depleted. And then I hit that last climb, and I just, I had nothing left. Mm. I just, I couldn't, I, you know, I might have been, uh, like those those Iron Man guys where once your potassium and everything's depleted, where your muscles seize up. I, right. I think I was to that point of that that depletion. And then the next year, I bought my road bike, and uh, still I got about halfway up that thing, and I just man, I just I just couldn't maneuver it. So then I walked a little bit, and then uh, and then just rode the rest. So it, you know, it was about ninety nine miles on that one, maybe, but felt good. It was an accomplishment. That's a hell of an accomplishment, man. The thing about the one I did on Sunday is it is flat. <laughs> I, I didn't look at like my, I don't uh, have handy my uh, my phone, smartphone that tracks yeah. the ride, but the elevation game is, gain is something like 10 feet. Like, wow. Uh, so uh, I, I sort of did like a baby century. Yeah. And I'm probably exaggerating when I said 30,000 because I can't remember. It was maybe like 3,000. <laughs> it's still um, like more I, than I don't like, know. It's still more than the 10 I did. Yeah. <laughs> But it was cool. So that was a ride where I, I kind of learned to, you know, I embraced climbing. Mm. Um, and then, you know, I kind of enjoy it. Sometimes the flats to me, just that constant pat- pedaling gets uh, gets kind of tough, you know. But, um, you know, I like it. Generally, and climbing's hard, but usually you have that descent, so it makes up for it. So you're kind of paying you're paying the toll on the front end and then coming down the back end. Right. Or you, uh, somebody, somebody said, uh, like when I, when I first started riding that when you go on the decline and then hit an incline, you kind of, you, they call it like bubbling up it. I, I don't know what that means, but I've not heard that or where it came from, but yeah, yeah, you get that, get that acceleration and then you just start pedaling and hopefully you get to the top without really having to strain yourself. That's cool. I have very limited experience with biking hills just by virtue of being in the flatlands of yeah. uh, Illinois, but that sounds cool. But did you guys ride uh, ride along the lake for uh, that? Yeah, we ride along the lake, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So along the lake up until Milwaukee, and then do you turn back and ride the, the lake back, or is there other... Yeah, it's sort of, I mean, you're always, uh, you're always near the lake, um, okay. and we get up to almost Kenosha, so not all the way to, to Milwaukee, uh-huh. uh, but you're a little bit further west of the lake on the way up, and you're much closer to the lake on the way down. Okay, cool. Yeah. Did you ride past the... Uh, uh, the naval base up there. The, yeah, the we ride camp. right through Great Lakes uh, Naval oh, Base. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah right, both yeah. Uh, through the base uh, and through a lot of the residential oh, area wow, through where the, the base. okay, uh, where the uh, the military families live. Nice. Yeah, yeah, I spent a little bit of time up there. Oh, so yeah, right it was. On. It's interesting. Chicago is. It's interesting because when I went, up, I went up there in August and it was super hot, 
and then uh, and then it just changed like on a dime, and it was freezing. Yep. So I had the both extremes when I was going through boot camp. It was good. It was a good experience. Right on. Yeah. So now looking at, so being in great shape, I think a lot of that as well can be attributed to the trip that you just took. Were you, was there a lot of walking on this trip? Yeah, there was actually, uh, we can even keep talking about biking. So there was a fair amount of biking ah, on, this, uh, on this trip as well. We did bike tours in uh, Hong Kong, uh, in Thailand, uh, and in Vietnam, and in Japan. Um, uh, all of those were like one day, one day sorts uh-huh. of things. Except for in Vietnam, we did a, a four day bike tour, and that that's actually the only experience I have biking hills too. Because there were okay. some crazy hills doing that. Um, for maybe five days of biking. Yeah, there are five days of biking. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so and, and let's dig into any of those uh, spots or places you want to talk about as far as biking. But as far as like the actual context for the trip, uh, yeah, we we were active during pretty much the whole thing. It was uh, March, April, and May of this year uh, that we were in, uh, all over Southeast Asia and uh, Indonesia Valley. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And so what was the catalyst? What, when did you just say, hey, we're going to take – we're going to take time away from our lives and we're going to go see the world. What, I mean, what sparked that? Uh, there's a couple of things that were going on. I think one is that uh, Allie and I uh, are both just travelers at heart. Uh-huh. Um, Allie spent uh, a couple of years in Guatemala after the Peace Corps, and she's been around uh, a lot of Central and South America. Um, I've had some good fortune uh, early in my career to do some travel internationally, uh, and, and I think we've just both gotten the bug to visit places. Nice. Um, I, I think the catalyst for it actually being a three-month step away from our life, that uh, step away from our life type of event, uh, came from a couple of things. One is, like you, I freelance, and so I was able to just look at this and say, I want to do this, and I can build my business around. I'm going to shut some things down mm-hmm. and start them back up when I get there. Um, and then, uh, my wife has been at her job for 11 years and so, and she's great at what she does. Mm -hmm. And so she's still valuable to the company. So she had a good conversation with them. They let her go. Uh, they wanted her to come back. So, uh, there's some things that fell into place, uh, with those work situations that are in part, uh, we worked for it and in part, uh, the world treated us well, uh, and things worked out for us. Oh, that's great. So. Yeah, and that's one thing I've uh, listening to the Tim uh, Tim Ferriss podcast. He, mm-hmm. you know, one of his philosophies is like many retirements, mm. uh, and I think that's a good thing because you get enough time to get away and recharge to the point where when you come back to work, you're really, I, I think, itching to get back and you know, chomping at the bit to to to, to you know, do some work and create something or contribute. So I mean, I, I think we don't see enough of that as Americans. You know, we take the one week, which by the time we get to the point where we can relax, then we're back into it. So we never have that time to really recharge. Or if you go see a little bit of the world, then it's, um, uh, you know, often I think people are exhausted. They take a vacation and they're they're seeing every site that's possible. And it's like, oh, I need a vacation for my vacation. Right. So I think it's finding that balance. When, when I went to Italy, it was more, I saw some sites, but my, my there were so many cool thing to see my head was spinning so i enjoyed really just connecting with the people there and like hanging out at the pub and i met some different friends and it was it was almost like being a local yeah so to me that was that was a pretty cool vacation and because i freelanced 
I was able just, just to go for a month and I stayed with my friend's mother. It's like a second mother. And so it was nice. You know, the, one thing you had mentioned uh, in an email, you sent me the generosity of people. Mm, and yeah. that was totally what I experienced there. And then that to me was what made that trip just, just a monumental part of my life. And so special was because of the connections with the people, their generosity and all that. Not so much the sights and things I saw, which were icing on the cake because it's, sure. it's riding my bike. I took my bicycle. I flew it over there. It was great. And at one point, I'm, I'm riding to a town called Monte Romano, which uh, my friend Sydney, which he lived in. So that was a bit of a climb because I was at sea level, climbed up there, and I'm riding on these roads past old Roman aqueducts. Wow. So, and I'm sure, what did you see when you were riding on some of these roads in Asia? Any like historical type, type buildings or structures? Uh, a lot of the, I'll talk a little bit about, so the Vietnam riding part of it, which like were the longest day rides. Uh, there's definitely a couple times where we were taking in historical sites. We were right through central Vietnam. Uh, we biked uh, to the Vinh Minh tunnels, which are right near the demilitarized zone in the, in the central part of Vietnam and actually took a tour through there. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly there was, uh, you know, we got to experience some of the history as we did some of that. Um, what was interesting about the, uh, uh, it's interesting to talk about sort of how to, how to be local when you're in a place too. And I think that's what I think, uh, and that happens through the generosity of the people that mm-hmm. you encounter. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, how we experienced that in terms of biking was, uh, it, it, this almost feels like a made up experience, uh, in that, uh, we were biking through village, through these rural villages at two in the afternoon, uh, when school was getting out. Uh, and so kids were coming out of school and here's a couple of white people biking through their village. Um, you know, and so, and you know, they're, and you're pretty white. I am super white. <laughs> you're like a ghost sometimes, my friend. Like don't hashtag that when you market this, but yeah, I am super white. Um, and so the kids, you know, uh, they're the degree of English that they know varies around, you know, hello, how are you? What yeah. is your name? And so, you know, probably half a dozen times over the course of these four or five days biking in Vietnam, we had just a, you know, a pack of little kids running behind us at two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, going, wow. Hello, how are you? Yeah. What is your name? Oh, wow, cool. Uh, and so, you know, from that perspective, uh, you know, that was just this crazy cool experience. But what we also experienced is uh, if we stopped in a place, went to a local restaurant, and we had a guide through all of this, so I don't want to like oversell like our super adventurous ability. Mm-hmm. I think we're pretty adventurous, but it's pretty some, adventurous but, regardless. But we had some help. Yeah, cool. um, but everybody was just so generous yeah. with uh, with sharing with us food because we were just it was a hundred degrees and we were crazy hungry and crazy sweaty, yeah. um, and so you know people were we always felt uh, very much taken care of. Uh, everything everywhere we went, people were smiling and uh, you know and it, so it just felt like a really good vibe. Um, I think the other place the generosity comes up to, uh, and again, this feels a little bit like cheating because they're my people, but I have family in Bali, Indonesia. Oh, wow. Um, I connected with a friend's family uh-huh. in Thailand. Uh, and uh, and so just even connecting with those people, yeah. uh, you know, took such good care of us. Um, and I'm like skipping through like eight countries in like three minutes. But mm-hmm. um, but we're in uh, Laos for the for the Lao New Year, uh-huh. uh, which is called Mai. And it's this three-day water festival. And uh, by water festival, I mean like it's 100 degrees and people literally throw water on each other everywhere you go. Um, It's little kids uh, standing in the street with water guns. It's people driving trucks around with like big trash cans full of water and hosing people down. It's businesses shutting down and like they're firing like hoses, like two people walking by on the street. 
Um, and everywhere we went, you know, we sort of walk up and people size you up. You know, they're not going to spray you down if you don't want it to, uh-huh. you know, and they're a little hesitant because they don't know if we're like the stay away from us Westerners or sure, they like, yeah. let's just figure out how we're going to do Are this. these Western. guys cool? And, and we'll see. And, and so for the most part, uh, these you know they were partying because it's their new year and so like they're dancing too so we just walked up and like we started dancing too and someone hands us a beer sprays us with water and like we've made some new friends yeah um and like and and that was just you know we walked into a party and and they were like hey come join our party and so uh we had so many like neat experiences like that uh and this is kept connecting with that energy yeah because you guys are are you know receptive to the energy they're putting out and you give it back and you're celebrating with them it's just like it transcends anything yeah borders no, color everything yeah no one was like paying attention to i mean for all i i have no idea why they wanted to hang out with us mm-hmm. and it didn't really matter because we were having yeah. a good time like i wasn't sitting there like in my own head about are they making fun of us or are they gonna you know like it wasn't anything like that it was just like let's hang out all right we're gonna hang out and have yeah. some beer and yeah. dance a little bit and then we're gonna move on to the next party well i think it's cool and in the states it's always cool like you meet you know an australian person or somebody with an accent somebody that's different i think I wouldn't say novelty, but there's something really cool about that. At least for me, yeah. it's just like I want to, you know, hear where they came from, talk, you know, talk about our similarities, our differences, you know, learn. Uh, sometimes it's it's politics, sometimes it's healthcare, sometimes it's just sporting events. So I mean, there's just so much that is similar, but you know, other things that contrast. And I think when we have that opportunity to go to another country, then we're that person. We're we're that that different person that they want to know about because it's not a common thing, which is super cool. Yeah. Awesome. Like when I, when I went to Italy, I, I mean, I blended in pretty well. I spoke. Ken is not super de- white, everybody. Decent enough. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but more olive, you know, that olive complexion. But so, yeah, I, I kind of blended in a little bit. So I didn't quite get that. And a friend of mine mentioned going to his wife's from Columbia and he mentioned like, you should go to Columbia, man. You're like, cause my friend is, pretty white, super tall. I think he's like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, and he said he was like a rock star there. Mm. And so, of course, his wife's Colombian, his kids, you know, have a good complexion, but, uh, you know, he's just, he stood out. So he's, yeah, he said he had a great time. He's like, you should go there, but once again, you know, he had mentioned, like, you probably blend in a little bit, so I don't know if I'd get quite get that rock star uh, yeah, treatment but maybe not I, I but know. still like the more you stand out and the more you can embrace that you're standing out and yeah. not, and not feel self-conscious about mm-hmm. it and just you know sort of have some fun with it there's a lot of good times to be had out there yeah yeah it's it's good to travel the world and have that better understanding um so you so you spent um how much time did you spend in northern vietnam or it's all it's all one country now i mean but the yeah um, so we, we were in uh the whole of vietnam for 21 yeah. days uh, I'd probably say we were in uh, seven days in the south, seven days in the middle, uh-huh. seven days in the north, because okay. we kind of worked our way from the south to the north. Okay. And then yeah. and one thing I found, in which I thought was really cool, I don't know if you've seen it, but the, the Ken Burns, the, the latest documentary he put out on uh, the Vietnam War. I've got it in my Netflix queue. I have, not, uh, I have not taken it in yet, but yeah. yeah. It, it's good, and they some of the scenes they show, just modern times, how it's... Um, it's not a big deal over there anymore. I mean, enough enough time has gone past. But I, I think one of the things that I love what he did, I won't give you too much, but, uh, I mean, it's history, so there's right. no spoilers. But uh, he he looked at both sides. So he was interviewing, uh, like, uh, generals from, from the Viet Cong and just, you know, citizens from, from, you know, south, north, 
Americans had fought over there. And so you it really painted the picture of what was going on. And, you know, we don't always get both sides of the story. Oh, sure. So, yeah, it was it was good. I mean, did you learn anything? I mean, how was was that your first time over there? Oh, that was definitely our first time over uh-huh. there. I mean, that was one of the reasons why we wanted to go there and spend that much time is, oh, if you're, as long as we're there, let's see as much of it as we can. Yeah. Uh, Vietnam was super interesting uh, on, on just so many levels. Uh, and, and Allie and I had different experiences with it because Allie's much more well-read on the Vietnam War. Okay. And, and I was honestly surprised and frankly a little embarrassed about how much I did not know about the war. Yeah, me, uh, me, me neither. That documentary opened my eyes on a lot of things. Yeah. So, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, some of the museums we went to, uh, I thought they were super interesting in that. And these were some of the things I did know. But, you know, they talk about the, you know, the impact of some of the atrocities that were committed by mm-hmm. the American government. And yeah. it, it, while there was certainly a propaganda aspect to it, it wasn't factually incorrect. Like we dropped Agent Orange. Uh-huh. Like these things happened. We yeah. financed a government that was not good to their people. Like these things happened. Um, it didn't present both sides of the story, but it didn't present an inaccurate side of what yeah. you know of what the the mm-hmm. American experience was. Um, what I thought was interesting was, uh, and I'll talk about the 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 one time this the one or two times this wasn't true, but you know by and large, uh, like I, we never felt our otherness as Americans. Mm-hmm. We never felt. Oh, I mean, we certainly felt like because again we stood out, but like no, we never felt like in any conversation we had with people that uh, there was like you're Americans and like there was a war and mm-hmm. like this is still fresh, you know. Yeah. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, I think. You know, it's interesting, you know, from afar, uh, you know, like President Obama goes to Hanoi or President Clinton, uh, when, when uh, Bill Clinton was president, goes yeah. to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just sort of like see that on the evening news and you don't think that much about it necessarily, yeah. or at least I don't. Uh-huh. Um, but I, uh, certainly up in Hanoi, it actually felt like Obama coming to Hanoi uh, and having and, ha- and sitting down and having dinner with Anthony Bourdain there. Uh, there's a whole tourist industry that is built up around the restaurant where Obama and Anthony Bourdain uh, got together. But I, it also, yeah, I've read something about that. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. And there's all this, and there's a really, and I think that I could be wrong about this, but my perception was that that was a really important point uh, in developing a stronger American Viet, uh, Vietnamese connection. Um, it felt like people actually cared about Obama in Vietnam mm-hmm. uh, and thought well of him and, you know, God help me. I hope that means they think a little better about Americans. And, yeah, yeah. Um, the the one interesting time that uh, that we that we just noticed a different behavior because of who we were. Uh, I mentioned we had uh, biked through the Vinmin tunnels in the DMZ, uh, which is uh, first of all just the super interesting site where uh, Vietnamese village basically built their city underground. Uh, near some cliffs uh, where they had houses, they had a school, they had a hospital, all underground to protect themselves from the bombing. And you can go through and tour. Wow. Uh, and a, a woman was taking us through and she would you know, sort of talk about uh, in the first 10 minutes while we were there, she said, we went here because these were the American bombing runs would go. They were about this time. Uh, we would usually try to hide here. And, you know, it was just talking about what the what the experience of the war was. Mm-hmm. About, you know, 10 minutes into the into the tour, which was maybe 30, 40 minutes, um, she stopped talking about the Americans role and just started talking about uh, how people live there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it wasn't a major change, but we noticed it. 
Uh, and so we were talking to the guy we were doing our biking with, uh, who was the guide for that tour a couple days later, and he had told her that we were American. She didn't know that when she first met us, which is also interesting because we look super American. Um, you could probably maybe be like <laughs> that Scandinavian look, maybe. something like that. Yeah, maybe yeah. we were Norwegian. I don't know. Yeah. Um, she went after he told her she felt embarrassed about having said uh talked about what the americans had done and she changed the way she presented uh, oh, interesting. uh how she did the tour yeah. it was interesting because she wasn't again she wasn't saying anything factually inaccurate she yeah. also wasn't doing a deep dive and objectivity of like which side did what but she wasn't saying anything that was untrue yeah. Uh, and I, I really hope, and I don't think either of us were portraying that, you know, we were like offended or anything. Mm-hmm. We're just like, all right, we're experiencing some history here and yeah, we're, we're yeah. hearing your story about, you know, what you know about it. Yeah. And I, I'd rather hear the truth and, and, you know, how people feel to have better understanding of what's going on. I mean, granted, I mean, we were both born around the time when uh, the war ended. Yep. So that's interesting now. It's, you know, 40 years later and, uh, you know, just how things have, have changed and evolved and. You know, now it's, I would say, ancient history, but, uh, yeah, because that's, yeah. Uh, but but I, I think they have definitely, from what I understand and what I've read, moved on. It seems like Which, they've moved on. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say that's, yeah, to the extent I, to the extent I know about it from being there for a few yeah. weeks anyway. Yeah, because we're not really, I mean, we don't really have a presence there that I know of anymore. So yeah. it's, we're not kind of manipulating it any longer, so... Yeah, it's the other interesting way we experienced sort of the legacy of the American War was in Laos, which uh, all your podcast listeners should go to Google Maps right now and like look at this. And uh, and I don't mean to suggest they're geographically ignorant. I don't think I was super. I'm geographically ignorant. Yeah. When it comes to Laos, I don't know anything about that country. Yeah, yeah. So it's just immediately to the west of Vietnam and mm-hmm. the Ho- parts of the Ho Chi Minh Trail actually run just a little bit through the far east of Laos. Okay. And during the Vietnam War, uh, some of the U.S. Uh, Air Force was based in Thailand. And they would do bombing runs from mm-hmm. Thailand, fly over Laos into Vietnam, and come back. If they didn't drop all of their ordnance in Vietnam, uh, they would drop it in Laos, uh, either either tactically over the Ho Chi Minh Trail or indiscriminately. Uh, because it was unsafe for them to land with that ordinance back at the base. And oh, so yeah, yeah. what you have as a function of this is large swaths of land in uh, eastern Laos uh, still have unexploded ordnance. Um, oh, wow. And so they have UN program, United Nations programs and things to go around and, clean, and clear the ordinance. They have education programs for kids because you're just a kid and you go out in the woods and you're like, hey, what's this? And like, it's a bomb. And if it, and there are, Kids get killed because they pick these things up. They don't know what it is. They yeah. throw it around because you're a kid. You see something on the ground. You pick it up. You throw it. That's the nature yeah. of being the kid. It's round or you it's know, round, right? Yeah, uh, but it's a bomb. And so oh, wow. that's actually it's both. I'll say two things about it. It's a it's an incredibly sad story. Um, you know, just on a rate stat, you know, Laos is the most bombed country per capita of anywhere in the world. Um, like in its history or current in or, modern modern bombing history. Okay, there's okay, some, there's gotcha. some superlative attached to it about uh, most gotcha. bombs. But it's not happening now. No, no, no. no. Okay, but just, so the, just in in the history of the amount yeah, of tonnage okay. that was dropped on them during the war. Um, Maybe it was just because we were there during the new year and everybody was, you know, off work and hanging Mm -hmm. out. Um, It also didn't feel to us as we talked to people that uh, it certainly was present. You know, there are museums, there are programs, there are people that know family members that have been affected by this. 
But it also felt very much like uh, as a people, and this is why like Laos was just like one of the, mm-hmm. probably my favorite country that we went to. There was just this really good vibe and strong vibe amongst the people that they're trying to make a better lives for themselves. Uh, however, is the best way that they can do that. Um, and we were talking about this right before we got on the air. It was it just felt like uh, the same way, you know, people in your own neighborhood in America where that's just Joe down the street. Joe goes to work mm-hmm. every day, yeah. gets his kids to school, tries to get them Boy Scouts or whatever. And everybody's just trying to live their life and do the best they can with what they've got. Like, and it didn't feel like uh, and I'm not this isn't to say I felt like people in other countries were pitying themselves because mm-hmm. I didn't yeah. sense a whole lot of you know pity seeking anywhere. But, uh, you know, for having this horrible thing that happened to their country that they're still trying to clean up. Uh, I, I just found it remarkable that everyone that we encounter and that we talk to had a very strong spirit of, we're just trying to live our lives, man. We're trying to do the best way we can. And uh, if you want to be a part of it, uh, cool, be a part of it while you're here. Um, yeah, it cool. Was just, it just felt really good. Nice. Nice. How, how was uh, how was the food there? Oh, there's so much good food. Yeah. I'm sorry I whispered that. I just don't want you all to know to go there and eat it because I want it to be there when I get back. Um <laughs> Now, we haven't talked about uh, Bali much, um, and we ate so much good food in Bali, which is in part because uh, my Uncle George has lived in Bali for 20, 25 years, something like that. And this is, how is Uncle George related to you? Uh, he is my dad's uh, younger brother. Okay, I don't I don't know if I've met him or not. Uh, he, he, uh, he lived in California while we were growing up, so you okay. wouldn't have met him uh, other than randomly like the one or two times he came to St. Louis. Um and his son, who is our age, was there while we were there. And so between the two of them, uh, you know, they know where all the roadside stands are, where nice. you can go get like this incre- this incredible uh, spread of food and super spicy, well well cooked vegetables and meat for like the equivalent of a quarter or fifty cents. Holy cow! Um, it is, and so we just ate so well there. Um, and my uncle George uh, married a, a Balinese woman named Elu, and she has a restaurant there. And so, like, we ate at her restaurant, and she would cook all the all the wonderful Balinese foods that she cooks. And um, I, I, there was just so much good food. And like, we got this personalized inside tour from my uncle uh, who lives there full time, and from my cousin who lives there three months a year. Oh, right on. Yeah. So, so now looking at that, I mean, this, I haven't traveled to Asia, and um, you know, and, and I'm not like. A renowned traveler or anything like that. What are some travel trips, tips? Gotta reset. Maybe I'll edit, maybe not. So, what are some travel tips um, for somebody that's looking to maybe? uh, How can they take a month or two off and and make it affordable to go on? You know, just a life experience such as you're speaking of. That's a big. I question. mean, is it is there is there like some tricks to to that, or is it just like being bold and and just jumping in head first? I it actually it might actually be that, and what I'm and I because it's more about uh, I think everybody's got to figure out how they make that work for their own life yeah. circumstances, um, and and so I do think for at some level the most important thing to do is to believe that you can do it and not yeah. get discouraged when you can't. Uh, yeah. If if something feels like it's impossible mm-hmm. uh, to keep plowing ahead on it. Um, I mean, one of the things that because it's 2018, uh, you can find a lot of cheap things on the internet now. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know That's why it's the World Wide Web. Exactly. You know, in Bali when we were out, uh, you know, we stayed uh, with my cousin and some of his friends in some Airbnbs around the island. There would we would get a four bedroom Airbnb with a pool and an outdoor kitchen near the beach for sixty dollars U.S. total 
for all like six of us that were traveling. Wow. So like you're talking ten bucks. Ten ahead. bucks ahead. Okay. And did did you do research to to budget like okay in Bali and Air we're going to be there ten days. Here's an average price of an Airbnb. Here's an average price of a meal. Yeah, and we, just kind of do like a, a rough budget. Yeah, we did some back of the envelope stuff like that. Okay, and uh, right. and, and I definitely say so for Bali specifically. If you can get yourself there, uh, things get real cheap real quick. And you can definitely also blow out your budget there. You can stay at a five star resort and go to five star clubs and restaurants all the time. Uh, but it's really not that difficult to, I mean, Airbnb, get on, mm-hmm. you, we all have Airbnb. Yeah, uh, yeah. I can, you know, you can, I can tell you the places we stayed and they're as good as I said, and as cheap as I said. Nice. Um, and there are roadside stands and like, you could just live in this beautiful place and eat pretty cheap. Um, and, and that's what, when I was talking about, uh, I guess traveling like a local, that to me, you know, fits that cause you're, you're staying in a neighborhood, you're staying in someone's house. Um, you, you know, you're going to more of, you know, I wouldn't say hole in the wall, but like, like the local eats where the locals go versus the thing that's more for a tourist or, you know, the five-star hotel and all that. I mean, did you feel that by going that route that you felt more, I guess, in touch with the culture and, and the people versus if you were, you know, doing the, like a Marriott type situation, something like that? Yeah, there are definitely times where we felt more in touch with culture because of that. Um, I, I also think it's fair to say there are times where both on this trip and other trips, um, I don't want to I don't want to do a disservice to the good people in the Marriott because sometimes after six weeks of, oh, of yeah. being local, I want to go to a place with some air conditioning. Yeah, uh, that I know is gonna that I know is gonna kick on. Uh, I, I want some just plain old scrambled eggs and like some pile and a little bit of pile of bacon yeah, on that. Oh heck yeah! I uh, get the bacon. So, so occasionally, like I got to get my western on just to like yeah, uh, yeah. just to uh, because I mean I live in the west. I like it. I haven't left it yet. Um, yeah, so yeah. there are some things I totally. still like. So, uh, but I think maybe a, a bigger another bigger picture thing, like as far as travel tips and make it work. I think it's also to the to your question of like, do you do the Marriott? Do you stay at the Airbnb? It's also to think about what your travel goals are. Like, are you looking for for, I want to disconnect from the world. Uh, are you looking for, I want to learn a culture? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it, it feels good for you and I to talk about, uh, I want to go to this place and learn the culture. Uh, learning the culture actually takes some work. And your vacation, you might not want to put in that work. And mm-hmm. you're not a bad person uh, if you don't want to go and learn the local culture. You're a bad person if you go there and shit on the local culture. <laughs> but if you just go there yeah. and you respectfully spend your money and uh, and spend time as a tourist, uh, enjoying the amenities of the place, uh, it's okay to not learn the culture sometimes mm-hmm. if that's not the trip you want to have. Um, so I, so I think that's probably the other thing that comes to mind for me. Um, because I do think, especially for like in the world of people to go travel for a month or two mm-hmm. months, like it's, uh, it's assumed that you're going to go local. And I also do think it's impractical to not do something local unless, I don't know, I don't know a lot of independently wealthy people. Um, like, but if you can afford to go do Marriott or hundred dollar night places for three months straight, like good for you. I'm yeah, really yeah. happy for you that your life's going that well. Um, but you know, you can do that for a week and not be super in touch and yeah, yeah. Uh, that's not a terrible thing necessarily and, and I, I like the idea of mixing it up as well yeah um and just kind of planning it finding those cool spots uh going on airbnb knowing that all right we need these other amenities like for instance did you while you're at the marriott did i'm assuming there was some sort of television and whatnot. Did you? Uh, were you able to watch any baseball games at the Marriott? Oh, we watched some. Uh, baseball season started. Let's see, and it starts in early April. We would have been in. 
I think in Thailand we did like call up like the first Yankee game or something oh, like that and watched right. a little bit of it. Um, there were definitely a couple times, and I, I honestly don't think we ever stayed in Marriott, but we did stay in a couple of West, very Western sure, places yeah. a couple of times. Um, and there were definitely a couple of times where we're like, hey, there's a thousand-year-old temple down the road, and we should go see that, but we're really tired and Law & Order is on, so yeah. we're going to watch Law & Order now. Because, uh, yeah, over three months, like you need a, you, I think you said this earlier, you need a break from your own vacation you're taking. So yeah. there were a couple of times where we just did nothing more exciting than the same sort of thing that we would have done if we were back home in Chicago. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that, you know. Yeah. Got to got to take some time to rest. So did you and you watch the game what via the net or did you uh um there was actually a cha- in a couple places there was like a Fox a Fox channel showing yeah, the game wow. like in like in you know time zone wise like we watched it we get up in the morning like we're getting ready in like 7 a.m. like that you know it was basically a 12 hour time uh-huh. difference so like yeah. 7 a.m. like there's some baseball on Let's watch that. Very cool. Yeah, yeah it's you know interesting to, to travel and watch baseball in a, another country. Uh, what, what other activities did you do there? Any like scuba diving or things like that? Uh, we did a little bit of kayaking. Okay. Um, Allie learned, uh, my wife learned to drive uh, a motorcycle in Bali. That wow. was super fun. Uh, actually, to cue back on the generosity of people, my cousin uh, Aaron taught Allie how to ride. Uh, and then, uh, Allie drove and I rode on the back. And, uh, <laughs> so, so the two activities of what we learned are Allie learned how to drive a motorcycle and I learned how to be quiet and sit mostly still and not lean too hard so yeah. that we would wreck. Uh, and this is not a small accomplishment for me cause I am not a sit still person. Uh, so that was an activity that, uh, that I had to learn. Very cool. Yeah. So speaking of generosity, one one cool thing that you've done for, I don't know, at least as far back as I can remember, is you, uh, and this is baseball in there, you buy a block of tickets to a Cardinals game every year and um, just make those available and ask everyone, if they can, to make a donation to a charity. Yeah. Now, when, you know, what, uh, when did you come up with that idea? What, what made you decide to do that and... You know, be generous as well as helping these charities. The uh, the original uh, idea of buying a block of tickets started uh, about 18 years ago, I think, uh, in, in the year 2000 or so. Um, and it, initially, it was just a way for me, who I don't live in St. Louis anymore, to come back to St. Louis and see everybody I want to see. Smart. Yep. Yeah. Um, Get them all in one place, exactly. and it's a, and it's a place where people want to go. So exactly. yeah, no excuses not to go. I don't remember when at first uh, I, I, it was just like, please pay me money for the tickets because uh, I need the money. Um, and uh, not that I'm independent wealth, we, independently wealthy now, but I can at least do enough uh, that, as you said, a couple years ago, I switched it to this charity model where if a ticket's 25 bucks, uh, I ask you to at least make a donation of 25 bucks to the charity of your choice. Uh, if you can make more, if you can make a bigger donation, even better. Um, one of the things that I love about doing that is uh, a lot of people tell me that uh, the rate, you know, if the ticket's twenty five bucks, they might donate a hundred dollars to whatever their charity of their of their choice is. Uh, so it's cool to motivate people to give mm-hmm. in that sort of way. Um, I also think that charitable giving is a habit, and so I, you know, I, I I run with so many good people that I doubt that I hang out with a lot of people that aren't doing some of this stuff anyway. But I'm yeah. happy to be able to share some of this mm-hmm. with uh, with my friends. Um, but what I also enjoy about it too is uh, well, there's a couple things. Another one, another thing about it is uh, you know I've got friends. Uh, we've all got friends who might not be having a good year, uh, but I still want to I still want to see them. They're my friends. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And so 
if their donation is that they're going to give themselves some tickets uh, so they can come this year, uh, I feel really good about that. Um, and I, I get to see my friends and we get to hang out and that's a wonderful outcome. And then uh, when they're doing better in a couple of years, maybe they'll make a donation again. And that's just, I'm cool with that construct. That works out really well. Nice. Um, if I'm being honest, there's also a selfish aspect to this too, which is I don't have to collect money from people anymore. <laughs> so that was always kind of a pain in the butt. Uh, so there, there was probably a not altruistic motivation there. But the, but the altruistic part is... Uh, Again, I get to sort of motivate people to donate and I also get to highlight like something that I care about. Two of the things that I've uh, promoted recently, actually three probably consistent things have been KDHX 88.1, mm-hmm. uh, our wonderful community radio station. Yeah, and I've, I've that was my donation a number of years. Like yeah. I donated in uh, your brother Nick's name, so it's cool to do that. Yep, my brother who is a DJ, yeah. uh, train of thought, uh, 2 a.m. on uh, Wednesday night slash Thursday morning, I believe is... Uh, or 3 a.m. We listened to his show uh, in the middle of the afternoon in Indonesia. That is amazing. So that was fun. Yeah, and that's a cool thing with the internet. You can be in Indonesia and listen to your brother's show, and then if it's 2 a.m. show, you're getting it at a better time. Exactly. And his show's probably, we're going to have to promote that in Indonesia. Yeah. Yeah. Marketing ideas for hashtag KDHX. Yeah, there you go. Um, The second one? uh, So the second one is the Alzheimer's Association, which is where my wife has worked for the last 11 years. Um, and of course, that's uh, Alzheimer's uh, is affecting a lot of our families. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah uh, that's certainly affecting my family. One. So there's yeah. uh, so there's that. Um, the other super uh, interesting one that I've started to pick up on the last few years is the St. Louis Effort for AIDS, uh, which is a fantastic organization. Uh, it's always been close to my heart because it was my very very first volunteer experience uh, in life. In uh, I want to say ninety two, ninety three or so. Uh, when I was in high school, I was a peer uh, HIV educator. And uh, what, what, how that worked was I would get paired up with someone who was HIV positive, and we would go around uh, high schools uh, in the St. Louis area, and I would give sort of the H- HIV 101 safe sex talk, and the person who was HIV positive would talk about what it's like to live as a person with HIV. Um, and that, I mean, first of all, just like as a life experience, uh, there's really nothing that you can do in life to prepare yourself better for the real world than being a 16 year old talking about safe sex to other 16 year olds at a Catholic high school. Um, good Lord, I got stupid questions all the time. Um, so there was a, there was a really formative experience. I met so many people that like, I never would have met, uh, out in the, out, you know, out in my, my little suburb in North St. Louis and. Uh, it was just, I also learned about volunteering. I, that's where I really started to first learn about the nonprofit sector. So, uh, so St. Louis Separate Parades is the other place I've asked people to, to donate to. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think this year um, there's an organization that um, basically gives medical care to people that can't afford it. Um, oh. So it's like in the county, uh, a guy I met through like some just like political canvassing and things like that. Um, he does that one. So I think I'm going to donate to them this year. That's so, fantastic. Uh, but yeah, he's always reaching out. He has an event coming up. I can't make this weekend. And, uh, but yeah, no, he works really hard. So this is good for, because sometimes we don't think about it or if it's like, ah, yeah, this year's kind of slow. It's nice to have that little motivation to, well, you know what? That's okay. Cause it's a lot of other people are struggling. So um, I'm doing well enough let's put this energy out and hopefully that'll create some energy to get things, you know, going a little better for ourselves as well. And I get to learn about places like this organization that you're helping. Yeah. That and, I didn't know about. So. And I need to, uh, you know, to put out some more information about it. Um, because yeah, I, st- I still don't know enough. So it's still kind of new to me. So it's, uh, I'll have to uh, fill you in on that another time or maybe put a little something in the intro. But, um, 
so so um, nonprofit work. You know, yeah. that's something you've been a, a big part of pretty much your whole career, correct? I, I think I just turned the page on my LinkedIn profile of going from the over 15 years of experience to 20 years of experience. Whoa. So that's an exciting cool. uh, turn of the dial for me. Yeah. And so what what, uh, what led you to get into nonprofit work? Did you, is that something like you were planning that when you were going to school to you know to learn about it, or is this something you just kind of fell into after after college? Yeah, the the path for me was uh, I was a political science major uh, in um, uh, in undergrad, uh, and so you know when you get out of Truman State University uh, in 1998 as a political science grad, um, I felt like I had a couple options. Um, one, I could go be a legislative aide, uh, which was not super exciting to me. Um, I could go to law school, which I also was not excited mm-hmm. about. Um, you know, one of the things I've done in my career is I've always tried to go where, like, I just love the people and like to spend time with the people. And I know a lot of lawyers that I love, uh, but law school also, I, you know, half of the people I knew in law school, I wondered if they were alcoholics. Um, and this is 1998, and I don't mean to you know, disparage the, law, the legal profession, uh, but there was a, just a group of people. Where I'm like, that's not the group of people I really want to go like spend three years with in this hyper-competitive environment. Um, and so I went to grad school uh, and got a degree in nonprofit, non-profit, in nonprofit management. It's called a public affairs degree at Indiana University. So there was, I guess, some intentionality from it uh, pretty early in my education. Uh, and then I was, I've been able to find work after grad school and throughout um, in the field. Oh, very cool. Uh, and so what was your first job in the, the nonprofit world? Uh, it was at the Urban Institute, uh, the uh, the aforementioned think tank of the Think Tank Softball League uh, in Washington, <laughs> right. D.C. Yeah. We uh, we come full circle. We have come full circle. Uh, back to uh, the time of bacon and uh, the, nonprofit uh, the bac- work. The bacon origins, right. And yeah. what, what kind of work were you doing for them? Or what kind of work to, you know, describe like a day in the life of a nonprofit guy and in, in in Washington, D.C. at that time. Sure. And, and, I, and I'll also start by saying it comes full circle because as a freelancer, I do a lot of work with the Urban Institute still now. Oh, right on. Um, and in some cases, I'm even working with some of the people I first started my career with. So that's uh, that's been a lot of fun. Um, I certainly don't think that uh, there's uh, there are you know a dozen or more typical experience mm-hmm. for, for Mr. Nonprofit or, or Ms. Nonprofit uh, in D.C. Um, but so it's a think tank. Uh, and, you know, and you would think like they don't really sit around and think about stuff do they like that's not a literal name it's kind of not but there were definitely uh i do feel like there were times where like let's just think about this this is a meeting where we're going to think about this so there is some thinking that happens but uh but it's a research organization and an evaluation organization so uh you know we're looking at social and economic policies in the country uh, you know, and there are uh, government agencies and philanthropic foundations that are trying to make the world a better place. They're trying to uh, sponsor programs. They're trying to spend monies in ways that help uh, families have a better quality of life, that help them access medical care, uh, that uh, break down uh, barriers to racial discrimination that they experience when they try to get a house. Uh, these are all policies and programs that our governments and our philanthropic sectors are trying to do. And so uh, what the Urban Institute does and the kind of work I've done throughout my career is uh, help understand those programs and policies and what works about them and what should be continued. And if something doesn't work, why it didn't work and how to change to make it work. Uh, so, you know, so from a, you know, so what you might do is go out and collect data about what happened. You've run a program. Did people improve their quality of life? 
Were they able to get a house uh, when they weren't able to get a house before? Did the thing that they tried to do from a policy, did they change a policy and did people's lives get better? Uh, so we're always, uh, the Urban Institute looks at those types of programs and initiatives across a wide range of topic areas. Um, and if they ever listen to this podcast, they're gonna be like, oh, that guy was about half right, but we should tell him what the pitch is next time he's on a podcast. Um, but I, but I always think the work is uh, is really important because you can actually see in the work, uh, it's often not immediate, uh, but somewhere down the line, you actually see where uh, something changes that needed to change because of the work that you started. Um, you can see that you helped uh, create an organization that was needed where there wasn't one. Uh, you can see where you educated an elected official mm-hmm. um, or someone who leads a foundation uh, about how to do something, and they've now invested resources and, and their money in a way that ch- has changed uh, lives for a whole set of people. Um, and, and also, uh, it's a lot harder and it's a lot less sexy to talk about the things you prevented, but sometimes you're able to tell somebody, the thing you want to do is a terrible use of money, and we mm-hmm. never you can never find a report that says that's a yeah. terrible use of money. Uh, but you can look at data and say, the thing you want to do there probably isn't going to work, and we know it's not going to work because we've looked at the data, we've looked at other people that have tried to do this, and it didn't work then. And so sometimes you can prevent something from happening in a way that uh, ultimately leads to positive outcomes too. Gotcha. Yeah, sounds very interesting. It sounds super wonky. And uh, one of the things I love about uh, some of the friends I have in life are uh, they are teachers or they are yeah. accountants. They have one word jobs. And you're like, I know what a teacher is. I know what an accountant yeah, is. Yeah. I don't know what my job is, but that was my best attempt at saying it uh, with the amount of time you've given me. Right on, right on. <laughs> but gee, Jake, it seems like this sitting around thinking nonprofit work, that sounds like an easy job. Ooh. <laughs> I set it up from your notes. Yeah, yeah, softball, softball. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have lots of thoughts about this. Um, I mean, they're, they're, you know, it's like the nonprofit world is not, uh, it's very different from the for-profit world mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, but it's also not. Um, you know, uh, what you think about uh, some nonprofits are super small, like they have, yeah. they have literally no budget. Uh, or maybe their budget's like twenty thousand yeah. dollars a year, and they that's don't like have that staff. clinic thing. It's just yeah. like you know volunteers, and it's yeah, you just see how how tough that can be. Yeah, and then you have nonprofits that are you know ten million dollar organizations uh, or hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Like you have you have nonprofits that run on budgets that are as big or bigger than anything you think of as a business, uh, where you would say to yourself. That business uh, is doing a lot of business, and they need to have professional management and people that are skilled, mm-hmm. and we need to pay them well. Yeah. Um, but I do feel like uh, in some in some corners of the world, there's this perception that no, 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 nonprofit work is easy. I can just go in and do that. Um, it's not true. If you're if you just because you know how to run a ten million dollar business uh, in the for profit world doesn't mean you know how to run a ten million dollar business in the nonprofit world. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't get there, uh, and it doesn't mean that people don't su- successfully transition from for-profit to nonprofit. But nonprofit work isn't some uh, lesser kind of work that uh, that anybody who is the for-profit world can just walk in and figure it out right away uh, because they're business people. Um, the flip side of that is uh, nonprofit people themselves also need to think about themselves as a business uh, and need to r- recognize that because uh, people do come to the nonprofit mm-hmm. sector expecting that it's a set of that it's a set of work that's easier, or that because they're doing good, maybe they can slack off a little bit or not work as hard because they're doing good. 
um, which is also, or they're just really committed to the mission. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing to be really committed to the mission. Uh-huh. Uh, but you've still got to do really good work. Uh, and I think this is a true whether you're in the for-profit world or the nonprofit world. You have to be a good professional at the things you do. Um, and so from a nonprofit perspective, I guess uh, the, the axe I have to grind on this is to say, uh, you know, just like your friend who's trying to deliver, uh, help people get access to medical care. There is a complicated bureaucracy involved with getting access to medical care mm-hmm. that requires a technical understanding of our medical system. Uh, and, you know, I, I could run down examples of any discipline or any uh, topic area you could think of and say, you need to have a technical understanding of how that system works, uh, how the money is spent, uh, how you get money in to pay for the things you do. Uh, you just can't slide into it. And there's it's it's good work, and it's not like, work that you can't figure out how to do, but people go to, you know, they get college and master's degrees in it. They go to professional development and they are always learning how to do these things. It is a professional field um, that you can get on Twitter and things and find lots or Google and find lots of articles about uh, people discussing whether we should even keep calling it the nonprofit sector uh, because nonprofit, even the suggestion that organizations shouldn't have surplus, uh, you know, surplus money at the end of the year is a misnomer. Um, if an organization makes more than they spend, then I have a couple of options. One, they actually can have a rainy day fund for the next year when enough grants don't come in, they mm-hmm. can keep operating. Yeah, yeah. They can reinvest it in their mission. Uh, they can do new programs. They can serve more people. Uh, the, it's just that the money doesn't get distributed to an owner or shareholder. And, where, and I should know this, but where, where does it go now? So if there's that surplus, is it going to those the missions and everything else, or do they have to put it back in some pool or... How, how does that work? I'm probably going to screw up some accounting terms here, and that's but, I'll, okay. but, I'll, yeah. but I'll give it a go. I mean, you just know, ballpark or just to get, get a little of the flavor of it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the money's just there. Uh, yeah. and, and I mean, and, and just from a literal perspective, uh, they have bank accounts. And if, uh, you know, if they have more money, if on a calendar year, if they spent a hundred thousand dollars and took in $120,000, uh, they carry that twenty thousand dollars over to the next year, and then, oh, so they can carry it over. Yeah, they carry okay. it over, and they invested it. You know, according to you know whatever the accounting principles and practices on oh, cash okay, flow gotcha. are. But like, it's not like that twenty goes away. Uh, it doesn't go into the pocket of a CEO. It's just there to keep doing the work that the organization. Oh, okay, I misunderstood. Does. I thought that there was a, a way that it, that it wasn't that way. So okay, good. That's that's cool. And then, so with that mon- nonprofit work, and you know, with the the freelance work, um, you know, a lot of the work you're doing now is is as a producer. Explain that, and then and, and then how your storytelling abilities guide you and aid you in in doing that kind of work. Does is it go hand in hand, or the, it's not? It's not unrelated. Uh, that's that's definitely true. So I produce a, a monthly live storytelling show in Chicago. Um, we do it on the back of a bar, uh, on a Monday, second Monday of the month, uh, every month, um, a little bar called O'Shaughnessy's on the north side of Chicago. Was that, uh, was that the place where we went like the night before your wedding? Yep. Oh yeah. That was a great, what a great Irish bar that was. Yeah. Yeah. Fa- yeah. Fabulous bar, a fabulous business partner for us too, because we don't charge admission at the door. Uh, they don't make us pay for the room. We're bringing, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 people uh, to the bar on a Monday night in their back room where they might not have a lot of business. So it's a good symbiotic relationship nice. uh, that we have with them. Um, excuse me. Um, but with storytelling, uh, so the show's been going for about five years now. We've done about 50 shows. We've had about 300 stories told. Um, and they're all true first-person narratives. 
uh, a lot of people will be familiar with the moth from NPR. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's the kind of storytelling okay. we do. Yeah. Um, in, in the sense that it is live first person narratives. Um, I, I'd say we have a lot wider range of diversity of stories that we have told at our show, uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, and the moth is fantastic. Like it's, it's done such a service to the storytelling world to like introduce this idea of storytelling and how important it is and make people familiar with it. Um, Moth stories also like have just these super big punchlines a lot, right? Um, and the st- and sometimes the stories that get told at our show, uh, it, you know, also are moth stories, and they have these super big punchlines. But sometimes they're a lot more uh, intricate stories. Uh, they're you know someone talking about uh, a relationship that they had and how they handled it. Uh, they might be talking about a travel experience. They might be talking about um, <clears throat> something that happened in their family or the relationship with their family or something like that. Um, or as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I might tell a story about why I love bacon and how I became yeah. the bacon guy. Sometimes, and you, and you have that bacon story. How many times have you told that? Is that, that one you keep in your back pocket? Is that one you tell every... How, how long have you been doing this show? Uh, five years for the show now. Oh, okay. Yeah. So is that one you may bring up uh, every now and then? Like a uh, new sh- audience to... You know, it's funny. I this uh, so as a producer, I spend so much time on the production side of the show. I often tell a story at my own show, mm-hmm. but I don't like to tell the same story twice at my own show. Okay, cool. Um, I don't do as much as I'd like to get out and perform at other shows. Yeah. Uh, which is to say, I would actually love to tell that story at other places, okay, but I have not cool. invested uh, a lot of time to do that. Gotcha. Yeah, I should probably do more producing on this because sometimes I just yeah, yeah. Throw, throw some out. But as long as you sound good, I can. You know, (laughs) (laughs) sound however, but, uh, but to go on about storytelling, I guess what I love about it is, uh, it's a, it's an opportunity for a bunch of people to get together and listen to each other. Yeah, Uh, You learn so much from that, from just people's experiences and oh man, it's huge. I mean, there are people that get up and talk about uh, battles they've had with, and, and now I'm going to say like, it's going to sound like all my stories or all the stories we hear are like sad and involved and it's an intense night. It's not like that. Mm-hmm. It can be, but, um, you know, but I've learned so much about, uh, about people's identities, uh, about depression, uh, about how people who just don't look and talk and experience the world like me, how they experience the world. Um, it's sort of, I, I feel like I'm building an empathy muscle just by, you know, doing this, uh, doing this, uh, storytelling show, because mm-hmm. I get this opportunity once a month to sit down with six or seven people who, uh, almost all the time, uh, come from a totally different walk of life for me and hear something about their life and how they experienced it, uh, in real honest terms. Um, and that's, and that to me, uh, feels like community building. Uh, because we also have a really supportive environment. Um, and I think all of storytelling, te- most of storytelling, at least as I experience it, uh, is a really supportive environment. Um, Chicago is just this fantastic place for storytelling right now. There's uh, a show like the show I do, uh, you know, somewhere happening in the city almost every night of the month. Um, and I don't mean like mine, like they're all the same show, but mm-hmm. like, you know, some sort of live first person narrative yeah. show. Um, yeah, the genre. The genre. Um and you can so almost any night you can go and hear you know someone telling a story and the audience is always uh, is always so engaged uh, in the stories that are being told. Uh, you can see after a show some you know someone had told a story that has triggered a story in someone else, uh, and so they go and have a conversation about it. Uh, it's just it's this really important way we all get together and understand each other better as a people in the world. Um, boy. 
at the beginning of this, you asked me how this wraps around to, to some of the work that I do professionally. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I haven't quite figured out like a really strong articulation for that, but the best thing I can say about it is um, what I feel like I'm doing in storytelling is building a supportive community uh, and helping people have their voices heard. Um, and in some ways, I think the work that I do on the nonprofit side has always been about uh, trying to support people who are trying to also build community and create a better quality of life in the communities where they live. Um, so I think from a mission perspective, those things are related. Um, and then the other thing I do in my work is uh, I talked a lot about data and research. If you'd only given me one minute to say what I do, um, I would have said I'm a translator. I help take technical data, research, and information uh, and make it understandable so that people who are trying to do things uh, in their organizations know what the key takeaways are from it and know how it applies to their work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some ways, that act of translating or figuring out how to communicate research uh, is another kind of storytelling. Very cool. And that was part of me not doing my research. So that was brilliant, that part. And that's part of my uh, the genius of my um, idiocy. So, like, I didn't see the bullet point when I was looking at the notes and didn't really, like, let it sink in. So, uh, yeah. So it's cool how you do combine those things and how building that community allows you when you do your nonprofit work allows, you know, that community from storytelling and that empathy there, you know, carries over. And then you have an audience when you need it to to do the good that you're doing in your work when you're you're not translating or if you have to like mobilize the troops and you have that nice community to to lean on or call to arms or whatnot so very cool uh, i would also say you're not an idiot you're a genius because i thought what you're actually doing is let me ramble on earlier so that i would eventually be more concise uh, so i thought it was just yeah different. yeah it works out i thought know? it was your master plan you know as long as a few people listen to this and get something out of it then i'm happy yeah. So it's good stuff, man. One thing you told me earlier, uh, I didn't realize that you were uh, a big professional wrestling fan. I, I don't know why I didn't know this. I don't remember watching wrestling with you back in the day. I don't think we watched wrestling back in the yeah. day. I mean, I you know I watched it a little bit growing up. You know, okay. I was I yeah. loved uh, you know it, it, there were so many people we grew up with that probably got super upset when the Saturday night main event came on instead of Saturday night live. But like, that was always my like, yeah, we got wrestling instead of Saturday night live oh, this I, week. See, I would have, I, I remember you being more of a Saturday night live person than Saturday night main event. Well, wow. that's because you and I emceed a pep assembly as Wayne and Garth oh, was. That's right. I forgot all yeah. about that. I'm not saying I was off the Saturday night live train, uh, but in the, and I think that wrestling stuff uh, was really only in the eighties too. So like, oh, yeah. by the time yeah. we were all Wayne and Garth in our world up, uh, yeah, I think wrestling sort of took a break in my life. But, yeah. um, you know, honestly, my interest in storytelling is picked up with my interest in storytelling. Um, and uh, and there's a whole lot of people all that listen to your – if people listen to your podcast, you're going to call bullshit on that. Um, but I'm, I will insist that wrestling is storytelling. Yeah. Um, and some of it is terrible, but some of it is really good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and not just the stories that are told as they're trying to create their characters through the things they say, but even the stories they tell in the match. And there, and there are some really crude big picture stories that are being told in terms of, you know, like some like real like basic elementary good and evil mm-hmm. and struggle and I'm hurt and I'm going to overcome stuff. But to see that happen with such physicality and acrobatics and uh, the way the the way they move, like I just think that's poetic. I think it's I think it's super interesting. It's super compelling um, when it's done well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just I, I find it fascinating. And and yeah, it is it is a bit of a dance 
because these guys and it's and the cool thing is you know they have to work together so it's not um and of course i guess kayfabe is the term that uh you know back in the day nobody talked about this but we all know that it's predetermined it's it's not fake because what they're doing is very real but um just the fact of you have the and it's, and it's more like improv than than choreography yeah. some of the things maybe more of the high-tech things they've worked on but it's it's more improv and you have that yes and yeah so any, anybody that knows about improv it's just like you do something and you can't um, necessarily you don't say no it's it's yes and then you add something else and I think wrestling kind of has that component where they do one move and how it turns into another move and uh and you know to to come out to where they want it to be in that story they're telling but that then then you get the stories which I, I wasn't really watching uh, WWF or WWE at this time was when uh, Mick Foley as Mankind goes through the Hell in the Cell cage. Right. But looking back and reading about that is like, wow, this is an amazing just story in this career, this guy, and just somebody that was so passionate about wrestling and almost dies and his tooth comes through his nose and all that. It's like, oh my God. It's some crazy stuff. In fact, I hear I've, I haven't uh, tracked down where to watch it yet, but I think he's got like a one man show, which the best as I can tell is his storytelling show Whoa. about his career. Yeah, uh, I, you know what? Which, I think you're right. I think I saw something like that um, on Facebook, but didn't it didn't quite register. I'm gonna have to double check and look and see where he's touring. Yeah, but even like uh, a couple weeks ago, there was this event in Chicago called All In, and it was a big independent wrestling that event. That looked amazing. I went yeah. to that. Oh, you did? Wow, you do know, tell. You know, like from a storytelling perspective, right? Like Cody Rhodes is uh, the son of Dusty Rhodes. Dusty uh, Rhodes, American Dream. It will flip flop it top maneuver. Nice. You know you're Dusty Rhodes. Um, yeah, Jeff. I guess Jeff would always talk like that. <laughs> you know, he won, you know, so he was, Dusty Rhodes was the NWA, was one of an NWA world champion, mm-hmm. and so Cody won the NWA world championship that night. And like, you know, again, so it's a crude story in terms of like, I'm one, I'm winning the thing that my father won. Yeah. Um, but it's still really cool. Like they create this whole thing around, you know, he's struggling to win the match and all this sort of thing. He's flying all over the place. He has people come out and help him. He's got the evil champion who's, you know, trying to keep him from his goal. Like it's, it's just real classic struggle stuff. Um, the last match, and, and actually it's fun, you know, talking about KFAB, like you learn like why things are the way they are, yeah. right? The last match, um, it had three luchadors uh, against uh, against like the three, two of the three guys who were like were the organizers for this. Yeah, and Ray Mysterio is one of the luchadors, yeah, correct? Yeah, that guy, I loved watching that guy back in the 90s, just high flying. Oh, yeah. Well, and for this match, apparently... They had to cram a 30-minute match into, like, 15 minutes to meet their pay-per-view. Okay. So, basically, they skipped all the pause points, and for 15 minutes, like, dudes are just, like, literally, like, jumping off of every uh-huh. post at all times. Yeah. Like, you know, guys, you know, fling another guy, like, put his head between his knees and fling him around, and, like, it's just literally high-flying acrobatics. Yeah. And so, like, again, from a storytelling perspective, like, you could actually tell, like, what is the urgency behind how they're trying to, oh, they're just trying to actually get all their work in. Yeah, and it's yeah. sometimes it's not even a story. It's, I mean, the story isn't the coolest part. It's just literally like, I mean, if you like to watch Olympic gymnastics uh, or you like to watch dancing, yeah. um, I don't know how you wouldn't enjoy watching uh, professional wrestling, particularly when it's uh, a Luchador mask or some of the smaller oh, guys. Oh, yeah, that those guys are the, fantastic. Uh, Doing all the flips off the top rope, you know, yeah. not even off the turnbuckle. You know, they jump on the rope, spring, flip back. It's, it sounds like what th- that match was like at uh, a 4th of July when they just light uh, at the end, the grand finale, when they light up all these fireworks at one was. time. It's just crazy. Yeah. It's like, what am I seeing? And you just can't can't really 
keep track of it all. That's cool. Yeah, that that event that's that's really cool how they brought together like they had some new Japan. They and I'm not following wrestling like extreme right now, but I, I know enough about it. But they brought all I guess these independent groups together. Yeah. They had Chris Jericho had a cameo. That was fun. Um yeah, that's that's really cool how that started out and the story behind I guess they wanted to do just like a decent pay per view and somebody said, Oh, I bet you can't get what ten thousand people in one place or something like that and so it was like, Okay, well that's our that's our goal. And then, you know, this had this huge event, which hasn't really, besides uh, the, the groups with more resources, it really hasn't been done. I mean, it's been since the 90s since someone sold out a 10,000-seat arena that wasn't the WWF. Yeah, you know? yeah so, that's huge. And it made the audience, uh, in a lot of ways, feel like they were a part of creating that, too, because they did such a... And this is also, like, tw- wrestling in 2018 is very different than, uh, you know, that Saturday Night Main Event stuff we watched. Um you know, they had a YouTube series uh, to promote each match and tell the story of each match before the show. I only watched one of them. Um, but I think, like, so if there were 10,000 people there, I was one of the 10 who didn't watch all of the YouTube. Okay. Because uh, everyone there was super invested in every story. Uh, it felt like well, most people there felt like they were having a shared experience with the producers where they were co-creating the thing together. Very cool. Interesting. Right, and cool. Right on, man. That sounds neat. Yeah, I, 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 it was not on my radar until it happened, so I, I'll have to go back and check out some of the YouTube stories and see what they do. Um, but if anything, when you know it's like the son of an icon, you know, Dusty Rhodes and, and Cody Rhodes, who who are there's Dustin Rhodes, I think he's still wrestling in. Uh, oh, I don't yeah. know if is he still in. Goldust, yeah. Yes, yeah, he's Goldust still around. Yeah, Goldust is still around. And then Cody Rhodes, did he ever make it out of? I think he was mainly in the like the minor leagues of WWE. I yeah, don't know if like he, he ever had an opportunity. Or, I think he was on the main roster for a little bit. Uh, he might have even been like a tag team champion at some point, okay, but gotcha. like he never got like a big push. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting that. You know, in this day and age with the internet and YouTube and, you know, they were able to create something cool. And now I think they're going to carry that momentum and that'll be something that's maybe a contender now, now that they've proved it once. Yeah. So absolutely. really cool, man. If any of your wrestlers uh, listen, to, if any wrestlers listen to this podcast, uh, facebook.com slash is this a thing? That's my storytelling show. Oh, right on. I will take some wrestlers in my show to come talk about being a wrestler. Oh, cool. So, I mean, so do you do like Facebook Live with your shows or you, uh, what's, uh, what do I find on your Facebook page for your storytelling show? Yeah. So, uh, what you find on the Facebook page is just information about the upcoming shows. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's literally, uh, uh, we just like create an event. Uh, and then that's also where we tell, I mean, I have an email address, but it's a lot easier to just, you know, remember to go to that Facebook yeah, page. Yeah. Or like it and then yeah. just pull it up whenever you need it. I've got a, our sound producer, um, or technical producer, um, I don't know what Damien calls himself there's this awesome guy named damien who uh who creates the who uh manages the sound for the show and he actually has a recording of uh all of the stories except for the rare case where someone doesn't want it recorded um i think we might podcast that stuff eventually uh but we just haven't gotten around to that yet cool well yeah. build build the content up and then when you decide to do it then you'll have you know you can consistently put shows out you know if you have i don't know 10, 15 or, or more finished, then yeah, it makes it a lot easier. You don't play catch up. Sometimes with this, it's like if I have a guest cancel or I get caught up in other things, I don't have enough pooled where I'm I'm consistent enough. So, yeah. but it's more, uh, you know, it's kind of going with the flow of it. I don't really worry about that anymore and just put it out and hopefully, you know, one day I'll have a, a big enough body of work that, uh, you know, somebody will listen to like this episode and go back and see who else is there. 
Right. So you will be uh, episode number sixty. So mm. not too bad, you know. I'm, I'm pretty happy with with the evolution, and it just started out kind of as an exercise to. I don't know. I wouldn't say improve my vocabulary, but improve my speaking skills and just get more, you know, be able to just do more off the cuff speaking right. and uh, work on my interview skills that, uh, you know, I, I get to work on with, with videos and whatnot and, and just a format where I, I don't have to put a lot of work into it, you know, where yeah. a video takes, could be 50, 60 hours. You know, this is maybe like five or six. Right. So it's nice, man. Any, cool. Anything else you want to talk about? You wanted to talk about music we listened to growing up, right? Oh, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, I think you were definitely more eclectic then, where I was more, I think, like, just stuck in, like, the Casey world. Mm. Um, so, like, I didn't, you were listening to the Morrissey, and at that point, I didn't know who Morrissey was, and in my limited thinking, I was kind of, like, maybe giving the stink eye, or like, who's that guy? Well, and oh. I think I liked Morrissey less because I liked Morrissey. I liked Morrissey more because I knew you were giving me the stink eye. And I don't mean like <laughs> you specifically. Yeah. I enjoyed My that type it, then. I enjoyed that some of the music I listened to had a contrarian feel to it more than I probably actually enjoyed some of that music. And it's not to mean I didn't like all that music. Yeah. Uh, but I definitely, growing up, uh, some music I listened to just because I love the crap out of it. And some music I listened to because I thought... I. I like I wanted to listen to it because I thought it made me be some identity I wanted to have. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And and that was when my limited thinking then is just like, oh, I don't understand this. So it, it seems like we I don't know if it was resisting or not willing to embrace something or give it a shot because it was like uh, and, and I would do the same thing with other things, maybe like films or want to want to know something cool that, that nobody else is into and and be original, but then wanting to conform. But I think then it was just uh, I don't know too many people in St. Louis. It's like the Casey, you know, world or or not having somebody to introduce you to it. Now, no, was Nick? Did he introduce you to a lot of oh, music? Absolutely. Because man, can... that guy. I wish I would have talked to him more back in those days. I would have just man, he's amazing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, there's so much music that uh, that I got into because you know my brother, and he still has you know like this monster CD collection, um, and he still has this you know he's the guy that like has like you know all five like special imports of you know Territory Amos's Little Earthquakes, including like the special Dutch pressing or whatever. Oh, you know, wow. like, yeah. Um, you know, so it, actually through him, I, I was both introduced to music that I wouldn't have found on my own, but also to like the nuance of you know if you really like this stuff, you can actually get some like crazy different versions of all this stuff like if you look around so there was also like this interesting thread of like uh just being like a super nerd about how to Mm -hmm. get some of the music yeah uh so that was a lot of fun um you know i you know the other thing i'll say about music growing up for me was there was a pivot point for me where uh i where i found george clinton and the p-funk all-stars and I don't remember who introduced me to P Funk. It wasn't my. That was one I don't. I'm pretty sure that wasn't my brother. But once I found that, that like took me off into so many musical directions on my own. Where that's where it started to feel like I was really following music that I authentically liked, as opposed to music where I was doing a balance of I like that, or maybe that girl will like me if she thinks I like yeah, more. Yeah. Ceased kind of thing that was going on. Um, so the so the P Funk I think really for me was sort of like my foundation of oh. 
what is this P-Funk thing? Oh, this is awesome. Nice. And, uh, and then, you know, finding all the band members and like all the, oh, okay, just everyone's listening to this. And I'm like super late to the party and like, what's this other cool music? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was probably around like 93, 94, like while we were still in high school or like getting to college too. And that definitely got nurtured in college for me because there's a lot of funk fans up there. Yeah, right on. Yeah, at one point Nick had his, I think it was like 2005, 2006. After one of the baseball games, we were talking music and he uh, he's like, oh, let me send you my like best of or like some of his favorites for that year that he played on KDSX. Oh yeah, he used to put which, together a CD, yeah, yeah a mix CD, which was super cool. And uh, and and one of the bands on there was uh, Street Sweeper Social Club, which is Tom Morello and mm-hmm. Boots Riley. Who yep. he just put a movie out, Boots did, and I I, I forget the name of it, but I, I have to look it up and and check it out. It was. Uh, it's like a comedy. It's uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm I'm destroying that. But so Street Sweeper, you know, I heard heard this one song. It was like I have to hear more of this. So then I went out and bought like their EP, and then bought another thing. So it was just really cool with him sharing that. Of course, now you can just go on Spotify and like, oh, Street Sweeper. Let me listen to everything they have. Or somebody says, why don't you listen to, you know, I don't know, throw something out there. Who anybody you listen to now? Uh, what was I listening to on the way up? You know, it's, a, it's, a, I, I'm kind of, this is one of the reasons why I didn't want to talk like a whole lot about yeah, music yeah. I listen to now because and I put you the, on the spot. No, it's cool. <laughs> like one of the ways I listen to music now is like, I find a Spotify playlist and I'm listening to stuff and especially like, yeah. you know, I'm dry, you know, I went on a five hour drive earlier today and I'm like, so I just pull up the Afropunk playlist on, on Spotify. Oh, right on. Some of that stuff I know, but a lot of it didn't. And I jammed on most of it, but like, so that I don't crash at 75 or 80 going down yeah. the highway. I'm like not pulling up my phone going, Oh, I Smart. like that band. Let me like write that down and add it to a a playlist yeah so um so from that perspective like there's so much i listen to but i'm consuming so much but not retaining a lot understandable Um, yeah that's i think that's common in this day and age unless you have that whole digital display system which i don't where it pops up your spot i guess you can stream your your your, through your phone your spotify and it goes on the screen so you know what you're listening to then then yeah it's hard to know i don't even know like when i listen to a cd or something half the time i don't know what uh, is a name of a song from a band I like, and I may listen to that song a hundred times. Yeah. So it's, it's it's different. I will say that on that playlist, I did hear one thing that uh, I started. I, the first few bars came, and I'm like, "Is this what I?" It was a it was a punk cover of um, of Ain't Nobody, uh, that song from the Breakin' soundtrack, uh, that old breakdancing oh, movie from yeah. the, from the early '80s. Um, Breakin', not to be confused with Breakin' Two, Electric, Electric Boogaloo. Boogaloo. Um, and so, so, so that's something I'm listening to. Ah. I'm like, oh, because I'm a sucker for a good cover anyway. Yeah. Uh, nice. And so that was that was a lot of fun to listen to. And I will also to bring it back to wrestling too. There's this. Uh, so there's this th- this thing about movement, right? Like break dancing and wrestling. Like I'm sure if I taught how to break dancer and a wrestler sitting here, they'd say they'd p- both like hit me for saying I like them for the same reason Uh but I like them for the same reason in the sense that uh, (laughs) like you are doing some really cool movements and like you're doing like some really interesting choreographed stuff that is really fun to watch yeah right on man well the wrestling thing surprised me and and I enjoy I'm just getting into Spotify playlists so I'll have to check some of those out does Nick have does he have any playlists he's putting out or is he just still old school doing the radio and I think he's uh, old school or he's uh, he's an Apple dude so I think uh, okay. he's got his playlist in Apple I don't know that he's gotten into Spotify okay we'll talk to him about that yeah, at, yeah. at the ball game cool all right buddy well man this was this was incredible yeah this just, was a lot of fun man yeah. uh, conversations with Calcaterra awesome stuff thank you brother all right <laughs>